0: Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Well, good morning, church. How is everyone doing this morning? It's always encouraging to hear someone stand up and give their testimony. It's always encouraging to know that our God is still active, he's still moving, he's still alive, he's still capturing the hearts of people. At the name of Jesus we sang this morning, at at the sound of your great name, people will be healed. People's eternal destinations will change because the great name of Jesus has been proclaimed. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing God we serve. What we are gonna talk about this morning is the depths of God's calling on our lives. To what depths does God call us in following Jesus? What does that mean? What are the depths of that calling? If you would, I've got two um, places that we're gonna spend the majority of our time this morning. If you wanna go ahead and turn to those and get those ready. The first one's going to be 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 6. And the second passage is going to be Luke chapter 9 verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9 verses 57 through 62. And before we get started on the, the depths of our calling, I want to take a moment and I want to I reflect on where we've been the last week. And what I mean by that is on Good Friday, we celebrated and we looked in depth at Christ's suffering, the suffering that Jesus went through because he loved us so much. So I want us to have that in mind as we talk about the depths of our calling. Last Sunday, we were privileged to hear Scott talk about the, the glories of the resurrection and resurrection life. So what I want to do before we get into the depths of the calling is, is I want us to remember where we've been. Because it's important to view the depths of what Jesus calls us to as followers of Jesus through the lens of his suffering and love, the depths of his suffering and love for us, and the heights of the resurrection and resurrection life. Because the reality of today's message is that we're going to look at some tough words that Jesus said. And if we go into these and we just look at the words, not in light of the depths of his suffering, not in light of resurrection life, we can look at the words of Jesus and think, well, he's being a bit harsh. But when we come into it with the reality that Jesus gave everything for us, he spared no expense And the price that he paid that we could live in relationship with him. And not only live in relationship with him, but have this resurrection life that Scott talked about last week. When When we look at the call to follow Jesus in the depths of that call, in light of the cross, and in light of the resurrection, it makes sense. So I don't want us to lose sight of where we've been. Because it's important to view our calling through that lens. So the first place I want to start today is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And it says this. As you come to him, a living stone, talking about Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen... And precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, talking about not only the church, but our lives, as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And I want to take a minute and I want to talk about the significance of the cornerstone. Because that's no longer how we go about building things. But back in Jesus' time, they didn't have a lumber store where they could just go and get two by fours and two by sixes. Bricks and, and mortar were not a thing at this time. There wasn't steel beams and all of this fancy stuff. So what they used to build a structure was stone. And what they would do first is they would dig deep. They would would dig for the foundation and they would dig deep. And the the reality is, is that in order to build a a structure with any kind of strength, with, with any kind of height, you have to dig deep to lay a good foundation So they would dig deep, and then the very first, the very next thing they would do is pick out what they called the cornerstone. And what this stone was, it it was the stone that, that, that took all of the integrity and aligned the building. So this stone was the most significant stone in the entire structure, If if this stone was off, if this stone was was off of alignment, if it wasn't true, if this stone was weak or or broken or, or cracked, then the entire integrity of the structure, the entire alignment of the structure would be off. So they took significant time in picking the right stone. And then they took even more time to make sure that that stone was true and strong and that it had integrity and that it, was, that it was perfect. Because the integrity and the alignment of the structure was based on this stone. And then they would build the structure around it. Then they would build the structure on it. And what Peter is telling us here is that in the same way that a construction worker back then built a structure, is the same way that we're called to not only build the church, but we're called to build our lives. And the reality for all of us this morning is that we're building our lives on something. Let me say that again. The reality for all of us here this morning is that we're building our lives on something. There's a cornerstone that we have chosen to say, this is what I'm building my life on. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the integrity and the strength and the the shape of that stone is going to determine what the structure of your life looks like. And what scripture tells us, what Peter tells us, is that Jesus was intended to be that stone that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone we're meant to build our lives on and in turn build the church on. When you look at the blueprints that God printed out for what your life would look like, at the very core of that blueprint is the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's on that stone, on that stone alone that we begin to build. And when we do that, because the stone is perfect... Because the stone is faultless, because the stone is perfectly aligned with God's will, as we build on that stone, all the areas, all the rooms of the structure are perfect and begin to align and begin to fall into place and begin to to take in the shape of of what they're intended to be. But the other reality of that is, is if Christ isn't the stone we're building on, what does the structure look like? What if we're building on something that's not as strong, that's not as sturdy, that has cracks and flaws, then the structure is going to suffer The structure of our lives is going to suffer when we decide to build on a stone that's not perfect in the way that the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is perfect. In in Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a story of two builders. And he says that one sets out and he builds his house on the sand. So he he builds his house on a foundation that moves and isn't stable, that changes, that settles and unsettles. And then he tells of another man who, who goes and he builds his house on a rock, a solid rock, a solid foundation, one that is strong and full of integrity. And he says, when the storms of life come, the building built in the sand crumbles And he goes on to say that great was its fall. But he says, the man who built on the rock, when the storms of life came, the house stood strong. What are we building our lives on? What is the cornerstone that we've put in place and said, this is the thing that I'm going to build my life on? This stone. Is it Jesus or is it something else? Jesus is the cornerstone that God intended your life to be built on. It's in God's blueprint at the very core, at the very center, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 9, Verses 57 through 62. And I think in these passages, we see Jesus encounter three, three men. And to give you some context of what's happening is, is in, in chapter 10, Jesus is about to send out the 72. To go and do ministry, to go and do God's work. Right? And he encounters these three men, these three potential disciples, these three potential workers of those 72. And I think that we see in the way that Jesus interacts with these three men, I think that we begin to see some false cornerstones that that not only people in Jesus' time had a tendency to build on, but I think that we see three false cornerstones that we today build our lives on. And at, at surface value, some of them aren't going to look like bad things. I just, I just want to go ahead and point that out now. And this, this isn't an easy passage to go through. And as I was going through this, I began to realize the weight of what I was preaching, not only for for you who are hearing it, but for me as I was preparing it. Because if I preach this, then I have to live by this. So I would just want to, I want to read the entire text and then we'll come back and go verse by verse. Is that cool? And it says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Tough words, right? When when you think about Jesus calling people to follow him, I bet this isn't the picture you get of the way he responds or the way that he answers, or the way that he says, follow me. But this is a reality. This is what Jesus calls us to. And I think that in the midst of this, we see some false stones that we tend to build our lives on. And the first one of those is is the false cornerstone of comfort. Right, And we're taught this from a very young age. It's something that's, that's ingrained and intertwined in our culture. Grow up, do what you can do to make your life the most comfortable for you. Oh, and by the way, you don't only have a responsibility to make sure that you're comfortable, but you can't do anything that makes anyone else uncomfortable. And if you see that in today's culture, it's becoming more and more prevalent. This idea of you can't say things that make people uncomfortable. So much so that they're currently trying to pass a law that's going to try to manage what pastors can preach from the pulpit because they don't want people who come into the church to be offended. We we chase comfort. We live our lives to build comfort. It's it's what we're taught. We have to keep up with the Joneses. I want to be comfortable in my home, around my people, and and even in church. I want to come to church, and I want to be around my church people, and I want to have this sense of comfort, and I want to have all of these things that make me comfortable, and, and I'm not really into that uncomfortable stuff. Right, And we put a check on Jesus. We say, Jesus, well, I'll follow you, right? That's what the man said. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, okay, but know that to follow me means that you're probably not going to have a place to live. And Jesus saying this wasn't just coming out of nowhere. It wasn't just a saying, but if you look at the verses prior to this... Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He sends his disciples to Samaria to to rent a room. And when they get a glance at Jesus, they reject him a place to stay. So when Jesus is saying that foxes have holes and the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he's talking out of his current situation. Process that. The creator of the universe came in human form and had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus himself lived an uncomfortable life. Are we living for comfort? Do we come to Jesus with, with the check or with the butt and say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but not if it makes me uncomfortable. I'll follow you, Jesus, but I don't want to preach the gospel. I don't want to proclaim the good news because that's uncomfortable. I'll follow you, Jesus, but I won't do this thing you're calling me to because it makes me uncomfortable. I'll follow you as long as my comfort is intact. That's what he's getting at with this man. Come follow me. But realize that the, 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 the walk isn't going to be comfortable. And I don't know about you guys, but since I've been saved, I've begun to realize that the things that God calls me to are generally things that I can't do on my own, and that's a little uncomfortable. That's a little uncomfortable. I can remember my first missions trip to Mexico. Uh, The youth pastor at the time came up to me and said, Hey, why don't you share your testimony with some kids? I didn't know what a testimony was. He had to explain to me, it's just telling them what Jesus has done in your life. So I get up, and so that was already uncomfortable enough. I get up, I share my testimony, Five or six of the kids end up giving their lives to the Lord and God speaks to me clearly and he says, get used to this. You're going to be doing it for the rest of your life. So he takes me and he puts me in an uncomfortable situation. I see him move and then he says, oh, by the way, it's going to get a lot more uncomfortable because I was, my mom's here. You can ask my mom. I was the guy in high school and middle school. I took F's when it came to public speaking. That was not happening. Getting up in front of people and giving a speech, that's not my thing. I'll just sit here, I'll take the F, and I'll make it up somewhere else. And then God, when I get saved, says, hey, guess what? You're going to be speaking about my goodness. You're going to be proclaiming my gospel for the rest of your life. Talk about uncomfortable. The Christian walk isn't going to be a walk that's full of comfort. Will we follow Jesus with the understanding that it might not be comfortable. What happens when the government comes down on the church and it's no longer as easy as driving into a parking lot, parking the car and walking through doors? Are we still gonna follow Jesus? What happens when the government tells us that we can no longer preach the good news because it's offensive, because it's uncomfortable, Because we don't want to offend people. Will we still follow Jesus and do what he's calling us to do? Or are we going to cling to comfort? Are we going to trade comfort for the cross? Are we going to choose Christ over comfort? The second thing that we see in verses 59 and 60, he says this. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So as I was looking into this and doing my study, I began to realize that a lot of commentators don't agree on the state of the father. Some would tell you that he's already dead and that the man just heard the news and was on his way to literally go bury his father. And upon that way, he encounters Jesus and then there's this interaction. Others would say that because of tradition back then, it was the son's responsibility to bury his dad. And for the son to not do that was to dishonor his father. So, some would say that the father in this story was not yet dead, but that the son was speaking of an obligation that he has to his father, to serve his father, to take care of his father's home, to to be there to bury his dad when that time comes. It was also customary that this process of burying a dad would take about a year. It was more than just putting someone in a hole and covering him over and being done with it. It was a year-long process that he went through after this. So what we see in the passage is upon being asked to follow Jesus, Jesus says, follow me. We see the man take urgencies of his own and put them above the urgencies of God. Let me say that again. We see that the man takes urgencies of his own and puts them above urgencies of God. And you can tell that because of Jesus's response, right? Jesus is about to send out the 72. That's where this encounter takes place. And Jesus says, let the the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There should be an urgency in the church about proclaiming the gospel. There should be an urgency in the church about proclaiming the kingdom of God and kingdom life. There are people around us that are daily dying and going to hell because they have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. There are people in other countries that have never once heard the gospel preached that are dying without an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Let that sink in. There should be an urgency to the gospel. An urgency, something in us that says we have to do this because they don't have much time left. And on top of that, Jesus is returning soon and we want as many people to be ready for that return as can be when he gets here. There should be an urgency of the kingdom of God, an urgency to proclaim the gospel above all else. God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. The things that are urgent for you outweigh the urgencies that I put in my own life. The laundry can wait so that I can spend time with Jesus. Let me say that again. The laundry can wait so I can spend time with Jesus. How often do we do that? God, I would spend more time with you if I had more time to give. We've put urgencies that we place on ourselves above the urgencies that God has. We put the comforts of life before Christ and what he's called us to. We build our lives on those things. The last thing, in verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This isn't an easy one. It's It's not an easy one for me. I grew up in a family that was very high on family values. Family was important. From a very young age, I knew family was important. My mom, my brother, my sister, they were important. This isn't an easy text to talk about. What's the man saying? He say, well, just let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is worthy of my kingdom. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 14 that if you don't hate your mother, your brother, your father, your sister, even yourself, you're not worthy of me. Well, what's Jesus saying? What's Jesus getting at? Does he he really expect us to hate our family? Of course not, right? We see in scripture love your father and mother. Respect, honor, your father and mother. Calls parents to love their children, right? So that can't be what Jesus is talking about. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, is that your love for me should be such a love that all the other loves in your life fail in comparison. Your your love for me should be the one overwhelming love in your life. I'm your first love. I'm the cornerstone you're building your life on, not not your family. See, your spouse and your kids, that stone's not going to be strong enough for you to build the structure that I intend to build. I'm the only stone that that can hold up the weight of what I'm calling you to. And I think that we see this in multiple ways in the family. And I, I think the first way, and it's, it's easier for me to talk about this one because I don't have kids yet, right? So I'll go ahead and get that out of the way because I don't have kids. So this is gonna seem like, oh, well it's easy for Kirk to say that because he doesn't have that family unit yet. How do we prioritize our time with our family? What's important as we spend time as a family? Is it is it all about just having fun? Is it is it all about just doing all the other stuff, going to the t ball games, going to the baseball games, or or is God in that mix? Or is the only time our kids or the only time our spouse encounters Jesus is on a Sunday morning when we make it to church? What are our our priorities in our family unit? What are we prioritizing? One of the the pillars that we build this church on, Waynesboro Free Methodist Church, is Christ-centered families. That means Christ is as at home in your house as he is with you when you're here on Sunday mornings. We build our family structure on that stone. Christ is an important part of what we do at home. He's an important part of what we encourage our kids to do when they go to school. When they step out into the world. When they're with their friends down the street that don't know who Jesus is. And I think the second way that we see that we build our our, our lives on this stone is by allowing the opinions of those closest to us to derail us from what God's called us to. When we value what mom and dad say, or what friends and family say, over what God is calling us to. Well, God, I I know that I should be talking to to Joseph about Jesus, but what if he responds poorly? I'm not going to come out and say it, but Joseph's Joseph's response is far more important to me than, than what you think of me for not doing it. God, I know you're calling me to go to go ask if I can pray for the lady at the grocery store, but what if she says no? What if there's a, a poor reaction? Well, I'm not going to say it, Jesus, but the way she responds to me is more important than what you're going to think of me if I don't go? Do we value Jesus above the opinions? And the view of us that other people, even those closest to us, may have. Is Jesus the cornerstone we're building on? Or is it comfort? Is it our urgencies, the things that we deem important? Is it family? I can assure you that only one of the four is strong enough to carry the weight of the structure. And the thing that we miss in this is that this isn't Jesus being hateful. This isn't Jesus being mean. It's not him being harsh. It's him trying to get us to understand That it's only as we build on the cornerstone of Christ that the structure of our lives, including our family, including our jobs, including our, our kids, including our spouse, including every avenue or every area of my life, it's only when I build on that cornerstone of Christ and Christ alone that everything else becomes strong and is aligned in its proper place. I'm getting married in August, and I can assure you that I cannot be the husband that Allison needs me to be, the husband that God has called me to be, by trying to love her first. And Allison will tell you the same thing. Because left to myself, I don't have the love that that requires. That love has to come from somewhere and it has to come from somewhere other than me because I don't have it in and of myself. And the way that I become the husband I'm called to be to Allison is by dedicating myself to building my life on the cornerstone of Christ and investing in that relationship above everything else. And as I do that, my my husbandhood begins to fall into place, begins to strengthen, and is aligned in such a way that it's exactly what she needs. And it's, it's the same truth that goes across the board. No matter what area of life you're talking about, work, if work's not going well, my the objective is not to say, well, God, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to put work first. Work's going to be the cornerstone I build my life on. And somehow that's going to make work go better. No, the, the reality is it's, it's God, let me meet with you. Let, do heart work. Do in me what needs to be done to help me succeed where I'm at. Is Christ the cornerstone of our lives? Because he was intended to be. It's it's in God's blueprint for your life that Jesus would be the stone, the stone we build on. You see, Jesus was never intended to be a part of your life. It's not what Colossians says. In Colossians 3, it says, look to heavenly things, run after heavenly things. Don't, don't, Don't look at the earthly things. Don't run after those. Don't pursue those. And it says, when Christ, who is part of your life, returns. No, when when Christ, who is your life, returns, you will be with him in glory. Christ isn't an aspect of our life. Christ is called to be Our lives, the very thing in our lives that every other avenue of our lives flows from, stands on, is founded on, receives its strength, receives its alignment, is on that stone. What are we building on this morning? When we walk out these doors and we go Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday, when we go through this year, when we go through next year, when we go through our life until the day comes where we close our eyes for the last time, what are we building our lives on? What is the cornerstone that you've fixed yourself to and said, this is what I'm living my life for? Is it Jesus Is it Jesus? In all three of these accounts, the potential disciples gave Jesus a stipulation to them following him. Do we do that in our own lives? The call to follow Jesus is one that requires us to build our lives on him as cornerstone. That is, Jesus doesn't merely become part of our lives, but he is our lives. It's on the cornerstone of Jesus that all areas of our lives fall into alignment and are strong and full of integrity. I want to end in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things were created through him and for him. I want to close today with reading um, an entry in my devotional journal. So the reason that, not the reason, but one of the reasons that this sermon series came up is I was at a worship night at my my beautiful bride-to-be's church and God began to speak to me. And he challenged me with this in February, um, and it says this: What if everything in our lives was meant to glorify God? What if the purpose and the sole call on our lives is to glorify Him? What if our marriage is to bring him glory? What if our family was meant to bring him glory? What if our jobs, what if our relationships, what if every area of our lives were avenues to bring him glory, to make much of him, to scream his greatness and proclaim there is a God, he is good, he is awesome, he is mighty, he is love, he is holy, he is God, and he is real. What would our lives look like? if we lived for the sole purpose to glorify the God who created us, who loves us, who saved us, who delivered us, what would our lives look like? What would our marriage look like? What would our relationships, our family, our finances, our everything look like if we sought to glorify him in and through all of it? Maybe then the world would see an awesome mighty and amazing God that it desperately needs. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesborofm.com.